Next, I have the, uh, the pleasure of introducing Scott Evangelista. I think uh, something we just uh, we can take from the last call, uh, last presentation rather, uh, to my mind had to do with the um, focus and execution, starting in some niche areas, finding out what you're, what you're really good at and building on that. And I think that, that kind of focus, that, that commercialization focus is something that Scott is very well positioned to, uh, uh, to discuss. He's been uh, in uh, consultant for the last 20 years with a number of uh, major consulting firms, has had his own firm for about nine years, uh, is now with Deloitte Consulting. Scott? Thank you. So good afternoon. Um, if you've been paying attention to your program, you might have been expecting Terry Heisey. Um, I think Terry saw that there was going to be a good video and a lot of good speakers before him and, and found something else to do and asked whether I could step in. Um, I have spent 20 years looking at commercial life sciences and helping life sciences companies position their products with their customers. And as we hear Deirdre talk about a little bit earlier, comparative effectiveness is going to be a new lens through which your customers are looking and really will form a lot of the basis. So we'll be talking about that today. Um, Comparative effectiveness, so I'll I'll try and define comparative effectiveness research. And and for those of you who have been in and around it, you'll know that that's a difficult task. Um, I'll discuss some of the challenges and, and why that's difficult and challenges specifically with comparative effectiveness. Um, I'd like to touch on some of the implications that I see and we see as a firm for life sciences companies, whether small molecule, biologic, or or device. Um, And then finally, talk a little bit about what we think it's going to take to compete in a world where comparative effectiveness is a dominant lens through which people make buying decisions. And then finally, I I was asked to, to leave each of you with something that you could actually leave here and go do as a result of comparative effectiveness. And I've made an attempt at that, which uh, ho- hopefully you, you, you will like. Um, first of all, in the, in the 1970s, it was called health technology assessment. In the 1980s, it was called effectiveness research. By the time the 90s came along, it was called outcomes research. At the turn of the century now, it's evidence-based medicine and comparative effectiveness research. Um, I I hope what you're taking away from that is this is not new. There's nothing new about it. Um, And it is complex, and and that's a little bit about what we'll talk about today. So what is it? Um, I will not go through the definition that was presented in 2009 to the president and to Congress. Uh, Suffice it to say, I probably couldn't even add up the number of hours it took to to reach agreement on this as a definition of comparative effectiveness. Um, But... Comparative effectiveness research has been done for a long time. In in 1972, Congress created the U.S. Congress Office of Healthcare Technology, and that office was designed to look across technologies and figure out which were the best. In in 19, it was, by the way, abolished in 1995. In 1996, the Institute of Medicine's Council on Healthcare uh, Technology, that was put into effect again to promote the, the discovery and the application of the best technologies and the best interventions to healthcare. So it came on board in 1986. It, they were done by 1989, unfunded. In 2000, even Blue Cross Blue Shield took a run at this and came up with RX Intelligence. And they were looking at the substitutability of, of drugs 
almost a simple question at the end of the day, um, it lasted two years. So with all the push for comparative effectiveness, you know, you, you can see that there, there's been a lot of roadkill along the way. Um, many of you might be familiar with the ECRI Institute. ECRI Institute is actually a poster child for success in that they've actually been around for 40 years doing evidence-based medicine and comparative effectiveness research. So as I said, it's not new, um, but I think the way that we need to embrace it is perhaps quite new. Um, I think about things in pretty simple ways. Um, Comparative effectiveness is really contrast of efficacy versus effectiveness. Um, Those of us in the life sciences business know that efficacy is very simply, uh, it's a measure of success normally against a placebo, in some instances not. But generally speaking, it's that sugar pill, right, that that, that Deidre said earlier, people don't want to buy the sugar pill, it's not on the formulary. And we know that when we go, and by the way, you have to have it for regulatory purposes. You have to have that study that says we're better than the sugar pill. But you know when you go to talk to your customers, they say, well, that's interesting data, but your patient population doesn't look anything like my patient population. You know, mine are much more complex. They're far sicker. They've got tons of comorbid conditions. Your data is meaningless to me. So then go to the contrast, effectiveness, right? The real measure of effectiveness is is this notion of outcomes. We want a better outcome. And you get better outcomes through, sometimes through observational studies, real-world studies. Um, Again, looking at, for those of us in the life sciences companies who have actually invested in phase four trials, millions upon millions upon millions of dollars to go get real-world data and to do head-to-head comparative trials, then we show up to our customer and we say, all right, here's our real-world evidence. Well, we're not sure if we really like your real-world evidence. We kind of like our own. So it's a very difficult place for the industry to, to be looking at right now is as the world shifts from efficacy to effectiveness, what role are we going to play and, and how are we going to navigate around that changing lens So a a couple of different elements that I think are important. One is there are lots of different types of evidence, right? There's not one way to do it. There's lots of different types. As you can see from the framework, whether we're looking from control to pragmatic or or clinical to value, there are different types of studies that can be done. And there, this is just a small list, there are tons and literally hundreds of different methods and methodologies that could be used to come up with comparative effectiveness data. Um, so starting quickly on the types of evidence, um, I, I guess you could really start from, from the notion of sort of ideas and hypotheses. And having come down with a cold over the weekend, people are filled with ideas of what you should do to treat whatever it is you have, whether it's as simple as a cold or as complex as diabetes or other metabolic disorders. People have lots of ideas. Um, where, you know, you bump up to case reports. Case reports were used fairly extensively where we would go into physicians' offices, do chart reviews, and try and get a sense over time of how physicians were treating patients and and whether that was working or not. Um, Dial it up another level, and, and you actually look at the case series studies where you might be following small groups of patients for longer periods of time. All tools that our epidemiologists used to study disease, to study incidence, to study prevalence, um, sometimes to study interventions and the impact of interventions. 
As you go up, you can look at case control studies. Case control studies are where we're taking cohorts of people, I shouldn't use cohort, groups of people with a disease and comparing them to groups of very similar people without the disease and trying to explain why one group has it, one group doesn't. Again, also looking at interventions to see the degree to which they make a difference. Um, Cohort studies are very long-term in nature. They generally start with healthy populations. They track those populations over a very long period of time, and they look to see what develops. So for all of you in the audience who have technologies and that you believe have promise in specific disease areas, these should frighten you to death. They all take a lot of time, and they all take real-world experience. And if you need real-world experience and you haven't even crossed the hurdle for the FDA, what do you do? So we'll get back to that. Finally, randomized double-blind controlled, placebo-controlled studies. We're all familiar with what those are. I I won't spend a lot of time with it. Um, Systematic reviews or meta-analysis, this is an area of comparative effectiveness research that also should be very, very frightening um, to a life sciences community. Um, We have all, and all you have to do is read the newspaper to see how a big study will come out and it will say, go right. And not too long later, a study will come out. They'll look at the same data and say, oh, no, go left. Well, wait a minute. Do I vaccinate my kids or do I, you know, do I worry about that or don't I worry about that? Do I drink the wine or don't I drink the wine? Um, so observational studies, these large meta-analysis, if properly done, might yield interesting conclusions. To get everybody to agree on what properly done means is going to take forever. So, there are a lot of challenges. You know, why so many challenges? You know, first, look at governance. I, I, and I, I think I'll get the number right. $1.3 billion, right, was put into comparative effectiveness research. Seems like a big number. When you start thinking about the number of diseases, the number of targets within those diseases, the number of technologies attacking those targets... Oh, by the way, the myriad of numbers of subpopulations that might have that disease, the permutations are in the trillions. So to think about how do we fund each one of those and which ones do we fund first and who's going to fund them and where's all that money going to come from, it's a thimble in the ocean. $1.3 billion, it's a thimble in the ocean. So governance and funding is going to be a big issue. Right? Um, I do believe more and more money will flow into it but it's still not going to be enough to move the needle in a significant way. Evidence generation, we have to get agreement on, you know, what are the data sources we're going to use? How are we going to link the diagnosis to the treatment, to the outcome? And can we get agreement on that? Because, as I said earlier, if you don't have agreement on the way the study was done, nobody's going to agree on what the study tells you and certainly not going to use the results of the study to implement any change in the way you care for patients. Right? So the evidence generation is very tricky. Then you get to, you know, assuming you get that right, big assumption, but assuming you get it right, you get to evidence dissemination. Um, This isn't straightforward either. So if I'm a life sciences company and, and I have an idea to go and actually collaborate with a large integrated health network and I do a study, maybe it's a head to head study and I do it within their patient population because that's what they want. We agree to what the protocols are going to be. We do the study. We get the answers. Within that environment, good news. If the study was successful, 
the population for whom that drug was intended will get it fairly quickly, right? That's great. But how do I tell everybody else, right? Marketing compliance, be FDA through DDMAC, is really challenging. I'm allowed to say what's on my label. I might be able to write a publication, well, but is that integrated health delivery network going to let me publish what we did in their patient population? Maybe, maybe not. Right? So you can start to see the challenges of even if I get some data, how do I disseminate it in a way that's going to have a big impact? Um, then we go on, I, I guess, really to, to, the, to the application of the evidence. If I got everything else right, I got the study funded, I got agreement on how to do the study, I figured out a broad enough audience. I'm not going to get everybody, but I figured out a broad enough audience to make the study worthwhile doing. I then have to make sure that I can actually get the healthcare providers and the whole apparatus that makes up our healthcare system to actually implement against the recommendations. Now, it all seems difficult. I would tell you that that last piece, which 10 years ago I would have said might even be the most difficult, today might in fact be the easiest. Um, some of you are sitting there saying, well, you know, the tone sounds like he's really saying we don't have to worry about this, right? There's a lot of complexity. It's not going to get sorted out anytime soon. Nobody really has their hands around it. So maybe I really don't have to worry about it. I would say you're wrong. I, I actually believe wholeheartedly that, that we are at a tipping point. And even though all those specifics will take a long time in getting worked out, there's a philosophy that's in place because of the significant cost pressures that we're under that this will, in fact, happen. I was telling my clients two years ago, before the health care bill got signed, that actually health care reform had already happened. Well, why? why? What do you mean it's happened? I said it was actually in the stimulus bill. You just didn't notice. Right? The funding that happened for, for EMRs, right, electronic medical records, Right, forms, and it's upfront funding, but eventually penalties. So there's significant pressure for providers to have meaningful use of EMR technology. This EMR technology will actually create the cornerstone infrastructure to make comparative effectiveness real. So without anything else that ever happened in healthcare. Right? And we all know that that's in lots of turmoil now. Will it be starved? Won't it be starved? Will it, you know, it doesn't matter. EMRs are getting plugged in around the country. You heard Deirdre talk about earlier about consolidation. Consolidation, in part, is being driven by EMRs because physicians are finding it easier to join large group practices that have them. Large group practices are getting up by, you know, bought up by hospitals that have them. And so you're getting this tremendous consolidation of influence all because of this one little burning platform around EMRs. So EMRs, when, when five years from now, when they've been put in, people have learned how to use them, they've learned how to start interpreting the data, there are a number of external companies that are looking at this data, trying to form relationships around the data so that they can actually help people understand what the outcomes are. That's what we actually have to worry about. Um, and, and so I would say it's here, and I would say you have to pay pretty significant attention to it. Um, so what does that actually mean? Um, you know, so we can look at a pharmaceutical company kind of through its value chain, and we can start in discovery. Um, you know, it's harder and harder to find targets. 
Uh, I, I was kind of looking at the graphic here, right? You know, it used to be that if you had a target and you hit anywhere here, you were okay, right? I've got a metabolic pathway. I, I can drive it all the way down. Uh, eventually, you know, maybe I'm going to move HbA1c, and I can move it in a positive direction. And oh, by the way, and it's safe. I can sell that. I can sell a lot of that. The, the target's now just the red dot in the middle, because unless you can do that better than everybody else that's out there, or if you're willing to do it as well as anybody else that's out there, but for less money, you're going to have a smaller market. There are tens of billions of dollars of revenue that are flowing today that five years from now would never flow. There are products that are on market today that five years from now would never launch. And my risk review people would crucify me if I told you who they were. Um, so anyway, discovery in preclinical is very difficult. It's finding those targets, knowing where we want to invest. And I think the biggest problem there is, is, is the portfolio management. How do we allocate our resources and decide where we're going to heavy up and where we're going to slim down? And it's going to be a challenge. Development, same thing. As I design my protocols, I have to meet very prescriptive language from the FDA in terms of what to do. Some therapy areas are more prescriptive than others, but at the end of the day, I've got to have a protocol that I can get approved by FDA, collect all my data, but that's not going to be enough to get to the market, right? You're going to have to do some collaboration with your customers to find out what do they find is important, right? BPH is a great example. BPH, there's a mandatory primary endpoint in BPH for peak urine flow, benign prostate hyperplasia for those uninitiated, all right? Peak urine flow. Nobody really cares about peak urine flow. Certainly the patient and the doctor don't have that discussion. The discussion that they often have, by the way, is I don't get enough sleep. I have to get up all the time and go to the bathroom. Well, I don't have that as an endpoint in my trial, so I can't talk about it as a pharmaceutical company. So I certainly couldn't extol the benefits of being able to get a better night's sleep because you're on this drug because I didn't measure it for sleep. But understanding what those downstream value drivers are, right, and how, what is the clinical practice and what are the issues around clinical practice, what are the issues that, that have people on and off medicines, it's understanding and putting our drugs in a context that's important to our customer. We have, for years as an industry, told the market what we wanted to tell them. We've not really been active listeners um, and, and that, I think, has to change. We have to spend a lot more time early in development with real customers listening, not necessarily the key opinion leaders who, who are driving the state of the art in the science. That's important. We still have to do that. But we need clinical practitioners that are treating patients day in and day out. What are the challenges and what do they need to add to their armamentarium that's different than what they have today? And that has to influence how we design our trials and everything we do in development. So shifting on, so what do we do around filing, launch, post-launch? So, you know, many are familiar with phase four studies. A lot of different reasons to do phase four studies. Some phase four studies we do because we're told we have to do them. Some phase four studies we do because we got a signal and we think we're onto something and we think we can discover something about our drug that will be meaningful to the market and, and we'll go down a publication strategy because we might not want to revise the label or we might not think we have time. Um, 
I think the way in which we think about phase four studies will probably change significantly as we start listening to customers. What's important to you about this new drug? What's important in the way you treat your patient population? And how might we do a study, which, by the way, if you look at the history of comparative effective research, it's not really just drug A to drug B, device A to device B. There are whole treatment paths that they look at. You know, do we do better if we go down the surgical road? Do we do better, you know, if it's not the surgical road, is it a watch and wait? If it's not a watch and wait, is it a, is it a pharmacologic road? So they're, they're comparing very broad spectrums many times. You know, what we worry about often is just head-to-head trials. Well, that may be part of it, but is there more value in being able to, if my drug can lower HbA1c by two points, and my competitor's drug can not only lower HbA1c by two points, but they actually have a program that they can enroll people in and keep them compliant 11 out of 12 months instead of 8 out of 12 months. There's value. Payers will buy that value, right? But we don't really think or we haven't historically thought about drug development and commercialization in those terms. If you change the lens and you look functionally for a minute, I I think without a doubt in my mind, the most complex problem and the most complex function going forward is portfolio management. And I alluded to this earlier in terms of picking bets around around R&D. But companies that truly understand how to do portfolio management and can actually do very effective modeling of what the competitive environment's going to look like what the state of clinical practice is going to look like and how certain drugs will fit into that clinical practice, they're going to make better decisions than those that don't do that. So I think that's a difficult one. Um, Health economics outcomes research, this is really more of a collaborative change. Defining those studies has to be done in greater collaboration with customers, earlier collaboration with customers, and by the way, a lot more transparency with the world. Transparency is a theme in comparative effectiveness that's coming whether we like it or not. Um, And I think that transparency will sort of cut across the the, the entirety of it. Medical affairs, you know, typically the medical affairs groups, especially field-based medical affairs folks that are out talking to doctors, talking to healthcare practitioners, um, their role is going to change too. Because generally today they go out and talk about something very specific they're not necessarily engaging in dialogue and they're not bringing as much back to the company about, gee, the doctors want you to think about this, they want you to think about that. So the way in which we do that, you know, we heard Deirdre earlier say that they have one account person in, in a large hospital system. Well, that's great. They, they probably have a team of 10 to 12 specialists that might show up at any given time. How are all those people going to communicate and share information about the account so that they're actually capturing meaningful information to then bring back to the account? Um, market access and contracting, I, I think, is pretty self-evident. Um, the way we get access to these formularies is going to be by proving value. And many times where we've wanted very fast launches for our drugs, we're going to see a little bit slower burn up front where people are saying, all right, we're going to let you in, but we're going to let you in in a controlled way. We're going to measure the impact of the drug that you're bringing, right? And, and then if it goes this way, we're going to adopt. And if it goes the other way, we're done, right? So we, we might see our, our forecast lines be, uh, you know, a little shallower to start out with. That puts stress on everything from, you know, bankers who are, are 
financing these entities to, to the companies and the cash flow problems that they have coming out of development. Um, you know, government affairs, this is big, okay? I think the government affairs and, and the lobbying in general for the industry has to really embrace what's going on with comparative effectiveness and shape it. Because if, if we don't shape how all these standards come out and what kinds of decisions can actually be made, we will be run over by it. We, we will be run over by vendors who do very, very gross-level meta-analysis, pop a very quick conclusion, and that conclusion will, will drive the success and failure of drugs, whether or not it's scientifically rigorous, whether, you know, whether or not it, it's well-founded. And that's a little frightening to me because, you know, as an industry, I think we really work hard to get the right medicines to the right people at the right time at the right value. And I've been doing this for 20 years, and I really believe that. Um, and it'll be a crime to see poorly structured studies go rampant over the industry. Um, but it's possible. So... How do you compete? Um, you know, Didra alluded a little bit to, to the notion of innovation. And, and, you know, does comparative effectiveness lean against innovation? I don't think it does. I think comparative effectiveness, when properly done, actually mandates innovation. It absolutely mandates innovation. What it does also mandate is you have to take your rose-colored glasses off and you have to be brutally honest about the technology that you have and, and, and the place and, and where it can serve in, in a treatment continuum. And, and if you can't do that, and I would submit to you that you, as smart as you all are, you're all smarter than I am, you can't do it yourself. This is, you have to get your customers involved and you have to listen really hard to the things that you're not going to want to hear. Okay? And they're the ones that can actually help you do this better. So you have to be brutally honest. I think you can buy some of that honesty by importing and developing relationships with your customers. Um, the comparative effectiveness lens is, will make you pay dearly for not, not doing that. Um, in terms of the way in which you do R&D, I, I think more experimentation and getting closer to translational medicine makes a lot of sense. Um, I think adaptive trial design, which I think you're going to hear about probably tomorrow. Um, adaptive trial design is, is a great technique to try a lot of different paths and to refine as you go through the trial and not have to place one big bet. Um, Certainly, the way you invest your money is going to have to be around a set of options because when, if you have a technology and you're early in development and you're really not sure what the subpopulations might be, you might need, whether you want to or not, to start investing early in companion diagnostics. Now, you may not be the best company to do that. Bam, you're in a partnership. So how do you partner with a company that's really good at doing diagnostics so that you can get a companion diagnostic so that you can better anticipate what population your drug will be successful in so that you can better educate your customers? Because if you can tell a customer and they have confidence that my drug will work in patients that look like this and it will work really well, they're happy. 
What they don't like is when you say, my drug works for everybody, because they don't believe it. And mostly it's not true. Okay? I mean, we've seen really large studies with really popular products go up against generic equivalents, and 20% of the time, they were a lot better. 80% of the time, they weren't. That translates, by the way, to about $8 billion worth of spend that if everybody bought into that, would never have happened. Um, the, the second aspect, I think, is really in commercial. And I, I've probably hit this fairly hard, but I'm going to hit it one more time. We have to stop pushing products out into the market, and we have to start listening to what medical practitioners need, and we have to start allowing them to pull products from us. Because you know what? It, you, you hear time and time again about the amount of money that's spent on the commercial side of the business, right? Well, imagine if you had such great collaborative relationships with your customers, and you were developing technology that they really need, and you did it with a set of protocols that, that proved the value to them in advance, and add all that to an EMR system, right? So we talked about healthcare technology early on. Healthcare technology that have baked, fully baked order sets that are linked to e-prescribing platforms, your customers could dial in your choice like that. So now all of a sudden, yeah, there'll be education to do. I'm not saying there'll be no field force, but the adoption rate could be really, really, really fast for technologies that meet a very specific need in a very specific patient population. So it'll change the commercial model. Um, you know, I, I think that allocating resources within commercial is also tricky. We have spent 20-plus years focused on physicians. Physicians, physicians, physicians. And I did a study, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago probably. It was a long time ago. We looked at 112 medicines across eight therapeutic areas, Okay? We looked at it for four and a half years of monthly data, and we were trying to decide whether formulary status actually made a difference in controlling market share. And you know what we proved? It didn't. We could still influence physicians to prescribe what we wanted them to prescribe by throwing more and more sales reps after them. Right? It worked. You know, it's, it's, it's not a secret. But today, that's different because the technology now locks that down in such a way that physicians are no longer the key influence in what gets prescribed. Now, I was dealing with an oncology company not too long ago who reduced their treatment protocols for well over 100 to well under 10. And the first question was, well, that's great. How do you get all those physicians to do that? They said, oh, that's easy. If they don't do it, we fire them. Oh, that's right. They're employees now. Right? So physicians aren't your key influencer. You, you, you have to start embracing the other influencers in the ecosystem that, that makes up healthcare. Um, so I think finally I, I'm going to skip quickly over a, a whole bunch of questions that you're going to have to be able to answer to be good at this. And I'm going to go very quickly. I promised that I would tell you what to do. I, I said if you're a banker, y you better get brutally market-focused and, and not so enamored with the technology, and you better really understand better than the innovator of the technology how that technology is going to make its way into the marketplace, and you better do a lot of diligence on that, because if you don't, 
you'll be making some bad bets. Innovators, if there's one thing you can do, it's collaborate. You've got to collaborate with your customers, and you've got to get that market intelligence and disease pathway intelligence into your company and shine a bright light on your development program and make sure you're headed in the right place. Employers, we're all employers, I guess, at the end of the day, you've got to create incentives for your employees just to understand more about the care choices they make because all of this comparative effectiveness will get wrapped up in disease programs, and those choices matter. And on a policymaker, government or otherwise, you have to have the encourage to align the payment incentives with the, um, with the overall change in the model. Your employers, too, and you need to embrace comparative effectiveness. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, as I say, abdication is not a strategy. Doing nothing will not get you, get you going, and hope is certainly not a plan. Don't hope that this won't happen because it's already starting to happen. I'm watching it day in and day out with some of your colleagues in the industry and some of your customers who are closing the door to products that aren't able to talk in in this way. I hope that's been a little bit helpful. Thank you very much.